0: All right, John chapter 1, this is part 18 of our verse-by-verse verse series in John, and part 2 carried over from last week, start reading in John 1, 14, and we will read through uh, verse 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now last week we started looking at verse 17 that said, For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's what we started looking at last week. And we looked at a few elementary aspects of laws. First we saw that the the very first law was violated by Adam. When God told Adam not to eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the first law that was broken. We know the effect of that. It spread unto all mankind that all the the transgression and the guilt and the condemnation and and the inabilities that came with that. And then we saw the law that was in place shortly after that law was broken. The law in the conscience. God imparted the conscience to all people after that. And we had talked about last week how that people by nature are violating their conscience all along the way as they come into this encounter with doing good versus doing evil. And they have this conscience that is, is not cleansed through the gospel, through Christ, through the spirit. And all it does is it automatically, it seeks to produce a righteousness of its own. That's all it can do. It's an idolatry factory that constantly is either accusing or excusing with that conscience and rejects the gospel. We also mentioned that after that was the law in the form of the Ten Commandments given by Moses. And this is what our text specifically is dealing with. And we pointed out man's duty to God and man's duty to all other men, which would be considered in the scripture called their neighbor. Man has this duty to God and and their neighbor to keep that law. That's the standard. You have to be righteous, and that law is the standard of righteousness. Those that are born under the law, which is everybody before faith. If that decalogue does not take care of that problem I just mentioned, the law of the conscience pretty much does the same thing. We know that the law and, and all the system that came with it, ceremonial law, its ceremonies and its penalties and its all of its sacrifices connected to it. The law and all that came with it, that system, was put in place, we know, temporarily, on purpose, temporarily, in the form of a works or a conditions system to show that you can't keep it. I don't care what covenant you look at that has to do with man keeping it, he's not going to keep it because of who man is. Man is unable to keep a conditional covenant. He just doesn't have it in him to do it. So that showed us, this temporary old covenant put in place, God doing this on purpose showed us there is a need for something else, something permanent, something eternal, something that actually works (laughs) because the old covenant didn't. And we had mentioned that it's not the law's fault. It's man's fault. The problem is in man. The law is holy and pure and good. It's just man can't keep it. You put man under the law and condition salvation on perfection, man's not going to keep that covenant. So it shows the need for something better, something permanent. In other words, grace. That's what our text is talking about. Something unconditional, not conditioned on us. So this unconditional grace system, of course, is uh, it's headed up in Christ. Who is what? Our text there in those verses says, who is full of grace and truth. It's a work of him for us, not by us for him. I mean, that describes really, really easy two religions, true and false religion. The law system is a work by us for God, for our salvation. It's pretty simple. That won't work. A work by us, we can't do it right from the beginning. We think that it's for God. God doesn't need some kind of half-baked, not good enough obedience as a condition for salvation. He's not going to accept it because of who he is. And it's for our salvation, which it can't be attained. By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now religion will, (laughs) the way I stated it here, I did it on purpose. Religion will say that it's for God. But God is just a stepping stone so we can grab a hold of that salvation by what we do. We can't, in a natural state, actively attempt to obey the law and truly honoring God in any kind of sincere way because it's, it's always self-serving. The focus is on us in order to attain something from God. It opposes grace. It opposes truth. So, the problem with the law system to be a conditional way to gain favor with God, it's just completely, obviously evident that it won't work. It not only won't work, it can't. It can't ever work. No exceptions. Universally, from Adam to the last person born on earth, it cannot work. Let's just say in Romans, try to, I think it's Romans 8 6, for the carnal mine is at enmity with God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It can't. So the law, what it does is we know that it shows sin. That's why the law was given. It shows sin. It accuses and condemns because of sin. And there is no hint in the law of forgiveness. You break the law. You can't do the law to get forgiven for what you broke the law for. You can't do it. There's no in other words, there's no making up for your wrong by continuing in the system that you became wrong with in the first place. The law itself, even you see it, you say, Well, it's good and it's pure, and it's not the law's fault, it's my fault. Knowing that, the law doesn't give strength to perform its demands, even knowing the issues with us the law doesn't give strength to performance demands it only ends up in failure and really the more that you're engrossed in that system and keep you know I remember when I was a kid doing certain things as far as like physically trying to jump over something to okay, maybe I'll get back further and get a run at it or you try to knock something down if you stand up close to a door and you're uh, unless you're Bruce Lee he could do it from like an inch away I've seen him punch a guy like six feet up in the air you know, you get back and you take a run at it and you knock it down, right? Don't we do that with in, in our former state? Don't we do that with the law? Pick yourself up. Well, let me try again. Let me tweak this and, and give it a shot. Try it again every time it's fail. It's a compilation of fails. So the ceremonial law, it exposed the defiled human nature and the guilt and punishment of sin. That's all that it did. It just constantly showed that. All this blood that flowed gallons of blood every year. And the fact that the sacrifices did not stop showed that there was a continual need of these sacrifices to show you're not forgiven. And we know that the old covenant with its ceremonial law was a type and a picture and a shadow of salvation by Christ, deliverance through Christ. Now, we throw those terms out. There's at least those three terms, type, picture, shadow. All three of those things are not the actual thing. Let's think about this for a second. A type is something like something. It's not exactly it, but it's like something else. We know a picture. I've heard the example where they say, this is my wife. So, no, it's not your wife. It's a picture of your wife. So, it's not exactly the same thing. It's just an image of. And then a shadow, you know, if something's standing there and the sun's coming this way, the shadow's going to be over here. And you look at the shadow and say, that's it. No, it's over here. This is a shadow of it. It's not a perfect rendition of the object. And that's the way the Old Covenant was. The types, pictures, and shadows did did not zero in on and magnify the exact thing. It's something like that thing. And this is part of the idea why that covenant had to go away because later in this system that Christ magnified, the system of grace and truth, showed it showed the substance. Christ was the substance, right? So the old covenant, it could not give the grace that it shadowed. It shadowed grace if you could even see it. Not everybody even saw it, but if you could see it, It didn't give the grace that it shadowed, and therefore, because of that, it actually opposed both grace and truth, especially if you couldn't see it, of course. The only thing that it did expose really clearly, not that it made everybody see it, but it exposed, again, death and condemnation because you just saw the blood flow, just constantly saw the blood flow, and it did not stop until it was replaced with the new covenant. So obviously, in a nutshell, it's to show us our sin. And in that tight picture and shadow, there is no forgiveness. There's only forgiveness in the substance, which is a totally different covenant altogether. It's the new covenant. And that's what we're seeing here in the text. You've got Moses and you've got Christ. Now, Moses saw what we're talking about within the old covenant because it pointed away from the old covenant to the new, the Christ of the new covenant, the mediator. And redemption by his blood. And there's a remnant of people in the Old Covenant that saw that by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. So there's a sense in which we can say, and I want to say this without people jumping on me. But you could say, I've always thought it this way, that the New Covenant was was really in place before the Old Covenant. It's an eternal idea. Salvation in Christ, predetermined. People in the Old Testament believe the same gospel we do. So it was already in place. But the old covenant was put in place to openly show you can't do this law. So the saints and the remnant of the old covenant that believed the gospel went through that and they saw Christ in all that. They were shown Christ. We, of course, see because we have the whole canon of scripture. We see it way more clearly than they do. Scripture says that we've gone over that before because there's a progressive revelation throughout history of the truth. So the law and its ceremonies were given by Moses to the people, the Jews. And Moses was not the maker of the covenant. God was. He was the minister of them. He was a mediator. God appointed these laws and ordained them in the hand of the mediator, Moses. The scriptures clear on that. Moses... Received it from God and ordained them by the, the hand of the mediator Moses. It says by angels he, the through means through, by which he received them. And then he delivered them to the people of Israel. And then I remember as soon as he came down from the mountain, they were committing idolatry. The golden calf, you know, it didn't take long. So this was really a very high office that Moses held as mediator. Historically, it was a big deal at that time that he was appointed to do this. And it was a great honor, humanly speaking, for him to have this position. But Jesus Christ is a far greater one with honor. And has a much higher office. As our text says. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So when it says grace and truth. What we're talking about is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's called the gospel of grace. It's called the gospel of Christ. It's called other things in the scripture. The gospel of God. And it is in opposition to. To the law as being a condition for salvation. That gospel is. And since it's a declaration of God's grace to his elect. It credits all of salvation to Christ. In other words, unconditional, free, sovereign grace. Favor of God in Christ. The salvation outside of ourselves. Done for us by Christ. In our text, not only mentions grace, but it mentions That truth came by Jesus Christ. And not only because the gospel contains truth, and by the way, nothing but the truth. The gospel is truth and nothing but the truth. It doesn't contain lies. Not just because it contains truth, but because it came from the God who is the God of truth. Scripture says that this God cannot lie. The one who promised I think that's Titus who promised eternal life to God that cannot lie. So the substance of truth is Christ who is truth himself. If we can get a hold of that, I mean, that's one line, one sentence, we be doing pretty good of what this whole thing says. The substance of truth is Christ who is himself truth. Now that takes care of what we talked about early on that A shadow and a picture and a type is not exactly Christ, but it's only a shadow and picture of Christ. But he himself is the substance and truth himself. That's why the comparison here. And of course, we know the truth is revealed to us. It's applied to us. And we're led into it by the scripture uses the phrase, the spirit of truth. And because... It is the truth these types are based on the actual substance of the shadow of the law which is Christ. So in other words Christ is better in every way. Read the book of Hebrews it's clear on that. Everything's better in Christ. And not just a little. It's not just like he's he's a better option. That's not what the the message is portraying, because he says, "I'm the only way to the Father." It's not like well, if if you don't like the way I'm saying it, you can go back to this this supposed older way. If you like it better, if it fits your tradition, no, he he comes and he says really nothing different than the saints that believed in the old covenant, knowing he was the, the one that's coming. The Messiah, He is the only way, and these things we're looking at—these, uh, as it says in Hebrews, these these beggarly elements—and I think in Galatians too, these beggarly elements or a weaker, the shadowed picture and type—the substance is coming. They saw in the Old Testament, and He is the only way, and they believed Him, and they were righteous. So this grace—it designs all the blessings in Christ. We've Talked about that in the past few weeks, all these blessings that, that we can have now in Christ. Grace designs that so that we can have that. And that's based on that work of Christ. There's, there's backing behind it. So it's done in a truthful way, in a just way, where Christ does this, and it results in this, and we get it. We're predestined to get it, to receive it. And they come by Christ. They come by him. Even though the Bible mentions the Father and the Spirit, we know that that in all things he might have preeminence. Everything is done by and through Christ. and That's the way they're funneled to us because he bore the brunt of the government of salvation on his shoulders. He's the one that suffered and died and put away sin. Therefore, grace comes by him. That's, That's what our text says. Grace and truth come by him. As uh, the gospel and the promises and the fulfillments of that all come to us, as Jason taught last week in the conference, they're all yes and amen. It means they're sure and certain, and we don't get in the mix to affect them so that they might be uh, maybe or no. They're yes and amen in Christ because it is finished, and he performed the work. The battle is over on that subject. So these, this idea of Moses and the law and Christ and grace and truth, you can't get back in the Old Covenant and say yes and amen. All you can see is death. <laughs> grace and truth are said to come by him in our text, it says. And it means not that they are merely an instrument or a means, but he's the very author of them. We talked about the fullness that's in Christ. And things like that, we talk about he is the fountain, the original fountain of all these things come from him. We don't add a catalyst and make it work. He is the fountain and the originator of it. He's the eternal word of God. These ideas are not something new. Uh, They're new to those that hear them because we're Johnny-come-latelys. But it's, it's the ancient, eternal truth that God had to glorify himself through the death of Christ throughout all ages, eternity past. So he is the author. So he's the author, of course, also of the gospel and the promises. He's the giver of grace. And that idea shows the superiority of him over Moses. And that's that's what we're doing. We're comparing Moses and Christ. Let's go to John 5 and, and start seeing some of these contrasts. I don't know how far we'll get through this. John 5 and verse 45. Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. This is Christ speaking to the religious people who trusted in Moses. They rejected the gospel. They rejected Christ as the Messiah. Therefore, they didn't know the Father. They were of their father, the devil. That's taken care of in, I believe it's chapter 8. But he says, I pretty much don't have to accuse you. Somebody else already accused you. The one you trust in has accused you. You don't even know it. Right? 46. Because if you had believed in Moses, you would have believed in me. Because he wrote of me. Moses wrote of me. In his first five books of the Old Testament. They're about me. He's saying to them. And they're like, Who are you? I don't get the connection. Yeah, because you don't trust me. You trust in Moses. But if you... Do not believe his writings, which, which they claim they did. How shall you believe my words? So there's just some contrast right there, right away. You, you see this over and over and over again in the gospels as Christ deals with, of course, mostly the religious people. They're blinded by their own righteousness. They have confidence in the old covenant. They trust Moses. They trust Abraham. They're trusting everybody but whom they should who is worthy of trusting, and it's Christ. And Christ always points back to these saints and said, you don't get what they got. They trusted in me. Look at chapter 7, John chapter 7, and verse 14. And now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled. They were marveling at this one who was teaching, and they were marveling at his teaching because evidently, It was pretty good teaching. It was something extraordinary that nobody was saying in a matter-of-fact way. And I I would imagine that they were hemmed up in some of their answers back. You see that all the time when Christ engages with them. We were talking about that last night, Andy, about how that Christ would engage with these people and the awesomeness of his logic and his truth as he knew exactly where to go with it, and it opposed theirs And here again, we're talking about these contrasts between Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters not being taught? He's a scholar. Christ, to them, he's a scholar. Now, we know who Christ is and what he knows. And his ability to learn, I would say, is way above the capacity of us because of who he is. Even as a sinless human, his capacity is higher because he has no sins. And he is the son of God. So they marvel at this. I mean, nobody has come around. that's. They were wowed, right? Jesus answered him and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me, speaking of the father. If anyone desires to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it is of God or I speak of myself. Notice that there's a hinge here. It's very important. We can't miss this. And it is the word doctrine. This is how we judge things. By doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. Of course, teaching that is extracted from the word of God. So it goes back to the authority of Scripture. Right? Scripture alone is our authority. Always and only. So that's how Christ said we should look at it. He didn't say... Look at the way this guy, he he doesn't go to the movie theater, he he doesn't go to the bar, his wife wears a bonnet, he doesn't chew tobacco, he doesn't eat chocolate pie, none of that has any authority. The focus is on doctrine. Now we know there's a possibility somebody can parrot doctrine and be lost. But most people parrot the other things and are lost, right? I don't go to radar movies. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't have cable TV. I cut my neighbor's grass. I don't cut grass on Sunday, though. You know, those are things that have no authority because they can be, they can be mimicked and we don't know the motive. We can know the motive by the doctrine, though. If they have a wrong doctrine, we know the motive of everything else is skewed. Verse 18, he who speaks of himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Now here we go. Did not Moses give you the law? Look at this clearly. Notice this. And yet not one of you keeps the law. There's none righteous. No, not one. Not one of you keeps the law. Then he says, <laughs> uh, the, the natural response of those that are exposed that they don't keep the law and their pride is uprooted by the exposure of self-righteousness. They seek to kill him. How many times do they? and they picked up stones to stone him, and he slipped through the ground because his hour was not yet come. And here it is. He's saying, why do you seek to kill me? It's not the law's fault. It's your fault. Here's the law. You can't keep it. Why are you mad at me? That's what he's saying. So this is the one. This Christ is the one who at 12 years old, as his parents went in to pay their taxes at 12 years old, was kind of slipped away from from Mary and Joseph and slid into the temple and was checking out the old dudes with the beards, you know, and the hats or whatever they wore. I don't know. All these old religious Jewish dudes sitting around with the scrolls open teaching. Christ was in there showing them about it at 12, showing him the things of the word of God. Who, Of course, he was the word. And you think about it. At 12, he didn't start his public ministry until 18 years later. And it, the scripture says, I, I can't remember exactly where I'm going to say it, Hebrews, that he grew. Somewhere in the Testament, he grew in stature and in learning. So in 18 years of of straightening out the old men with the beards in the temple, imagine, I mean, we see right here, the text. It's at that time that he's now dishing out strong arguments to these people that were trusting in Moses, a failed system. Look at chapter 9, John 9, verse 24 then a second time, they called the man who was blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that I was once blind, but now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already. First of all, we were kind of talking about that last night. How many times have we done that, talking about the gospel, talking about Christ and and clarity over and over again? And the same ignorant, idiotic, stupid arguments, of course, we used to participate in too, are given to us. And we said to them, I already told you. And so you think, all right, you're either going to say it the exact same way or you're going to switch up the words. I don't know. What the technique would be. But you tell them again. Because you do have care for their soul. So I told you already. And you didn't hear. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also desire to be his disciples? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Then they reviled him saying. You are his disciples. But we are Moses' disciples splitting it up into teams you're on the opposing team you don't know Jack we've got it together we've got the history the tradition and you're saying things that are not even though you're you know you seem to be we marvel at your doctrine and we don't understand how you got educated like you did that being said we don't agree <laughs> with grace and truth in that sense they said verse 29. We know that God spoke to Moses. They're sure of that. And you know what he did? We know that he did. But their interpretation of what was said and what it all means is totally different. And he goes on, but we do not know from where this man is. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know from where he is and that he has opened my eyes. There's a lot of stuff in here that we could talk about. Like, he's a high priest forever after he of Melchizedek. They don't know where he came from. He had no mother, and no father. He's eternal, right? And that is a marvelous thing. That was a qualification. That he did not be born of a non-virgin and inherit the sin nature and the imputed sin of Adam. It's a marvelous thing <laughs> that uh, he bypassed that. They knew nothing of that, of course. Verse 31. But, we know that God does not hear sinners. Now this is a fact. This is a true statement. God does not hear sinners. me just stop and insert this a second. We are against here what's typically known as the altar call invitation sinners prayer. And we know that that system teaches that you gain salvation by uh, initiating a prayer. To bring God to, to bring to attention who you are from God. You're doing it. You're saying it's a condition that you do it and bring God to yourself. And you beckon God to come to you. And because of that, you're in. That's, quote, unquote, all you got to do. Say the prayer and mean it in your heart, in your heart of hearts. Right. You've heard it. God does not hear sinners. You have to have a mediator for God to hear you, for you to be heard. So this is a true statement here. But we know God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. So people in religion take this as a conditional system. You can't get grace until you humble yourself, right? Right? See, and we've talked about that. That's not the way it works. The one that God gives grace to, he humbles also. It's not a conditional thing. I've humbled myself enough to where I will get grace. It's not that. From everlasting, it was not heard that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. It's never been done before. It's unheard of, they said. If this one were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, you were all together born in sins. Do you teach us? So those religious people are looking at this blind guy and said, didn't say you, you're born in sin. They said, you're all together born in sin. You're bad. <laughs> God, I think, I thank you that I'm not like other men who are all together born in sins, ate up with sins. And they cast him out. You know, they said before that, said, you're, and you're teaching us. Then they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they cast him out, and finding him, Jesus said, Do you believe on the Son of God? And the guy that who had just had his eyes opened, he answered him and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and it is he who's speaking to you. I'm the one, I'm him, in other words. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, I have come into the world for judgment that they who do not see might see. And that they who see might be made blind. It's opposite day in the natural realm. <laughs> and those are the Pharisees, of course, who were with him heard these words and said unto him, are we also blind? Uh, I'm getting your inference, your implications here. uh, Is that what you're saying to me? Christ is pretty clear and yes. (laughs) And Jesus said unto them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Self-righteousness here. He's pointing it out. They're saying that they disagree with the Old Testament text out of different places in Psalm that says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understandeth. They're saying, and they had they had these writings. They're saying, I don't agree with that. So they, didn't believe, they didn't believe the writings of the old prophets. They thought they were the go-to guys for the law. They didn't understand the law. They didn't keep the law. Christ proved it over and over again. He said, you have these writings, and and you don't even do what these writings say. You don't understand them. So these people here, they chose to reject Christ in favor of Moses. We talking about this a little bit last night. Andy brought this up in a conversation about a choice. And, you know, sometimes when Calvinists, Reformed sovereign grace people, Talk to other people, they get this choice, they don't qualify their language, and they get this choice to say, You don't have a choice. So we want to qualify that. We want to talk just for a second about the will, how that man has a will. Don't ever tell people they don't have a will, but make sure you tell them that their will is in bondage to their nature, right? Because when you say you don't have a will, humanly speaking, they just turned you off. They're offended at something you didn't say right. You explain to them, though, you go further and say, no, you're, you have a will. But let me tell you that it's not free. And why it's not free? Because it's connected to and it's bound to your sinful nature. Therefore, when something is spoken, a contrast of Moses and Christ, there is a choice that is activated and it involves your will. And those that are not enlightened, that will and that choice is bound to the nature to always choose the wrong thing. Moses. But when it is enlightened and life is given, we've said before here recently, it's too late. (laughs) Your heart is changed and you're irresistibly going for Christ. So your will is not free in that sense either. So there is a choice there. Choose you this day whom you serve for me and my house you know, we're going to serve the Lord. But keep in mind why that will moves because of the influence either way. So they rejected Christ blindly, trusting in themselves because of using Moses as their authority. Let's look at one more text to go to Acts chapter 13. We'll conclude with this. Acts 13, start reading in verse 37. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption, speaking of Christ. Therefore, be it known to you, men and brothers, that through this one, Christ, the forgiveness of sins is announced to you. And by him, Christ, all who believe are justified from all things, notice this, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses by the deeds of the flesh shall no person be justified you cannot be forgiven you cannot be pardoned you cannot be reconciled you cannot have this life of faith through Moses' system therefore, verse 40 Beware lest that come on you, which is spoken of the prophets. Behold, you despisers and marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no way believe. Look at that language. You shall in no way believe. We see other harmonious testimony that says you can't until or unless my grace is involved, though a man declare it to you. <laughs> he's saying here, it's not that you didn't hear it. It didn't go in your ear. It's not that you you are the problem. You have a you have a problem with who you are by nature. And the Jews, having gone out of the synagogue, the nations in this version, the modern King James uses the word nations, which means Gentiles. And here in a second, we'll talk some more about that in conclusion. Jews having gone out of the synagogue, the the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So they were interested. They hadn't heard anything like this. They actually begged, we want to hear this next week, some more about it. And the synagogue being broken up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, in the grace of God. And on the coming Sabbath day, almost notice this. I, I didn't hadn't seen this before. Almost all the city came together to hear the word of God. I mean, that's the vast majority, almost all the city. I mean, that must have been a stir, you know. There was probably talk throughout that week. Hey, we wanted him to come back and talk about this. He said he was. Let's check it out. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicted those things which were spoken by Paul. Notice contradicting and blaspheming. But speaking boldly, Paul and Barnabas said it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first, you Jews first. But since, indeed, you put it far from you and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. That's kind of weird language, isn't it? But that's what he's saying. He said, here's what you're implying by rejecting. That you're unworthy of everlasting life. You're not even believing what I'm saying about who this is for. The type of people that it's for. The people that need this. Lo, we turn to the nations. Since you're not hearing it, it was decreed that it's spoken to you first. You don't seem to have any interest in it. So what we're doing, we're turning away from you to the nations or Gentiles. Sometimes the scripture uses the word world here. Gentiles, I've seen the word heathen used. Speaking of non-Jews. I mean, you could have thrown the dogs in here because Paul talked to the religious people saying, you know, you guys consider Gentiles dogs. And then Philippians, he turned around and called them dogs. So there's all those different words there, which is talking about the non-Jews. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light of the nations for salvation to the end of the earth. And hearing the Gentiles rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord, And here we go. One of my favorite verses. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed by God beforehand believed. Starting to see some uh, New Testament contrasts there between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Those that were wrapped in the Old Covenant, how they thought and what they said. And here Christ, the Reformer, The one between these two covenants, the one who is the mediator of the new, is saying these things throughout Scripture. Not just for these people that were there, but they're for us. And then, of course, all these New Testament books later, the epistles were warnings. Don't go don't go back there. We've got the substance. We've got the we've got him. Don't go back and, and dabble in the weak and beggarly elements. I'm hoping that next week I can um, finish this verse 17. There, there's so much there that we could still cover. And uh, I think one more message we'll cover. we probably even have enough time to move to the next verse, verse 18, about the invisibility of God. Some things I've been thinking about that recently. And the importance, the importance of that. Any comments or questions?